Before we get started, we'd like, as usual, to thank our Patreon supporters and remind listeners that as a nonprofit, we rely on your help to keep making Big Biology. To support us, please make a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bigbio or make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. Another way to help us is to recommend Big Biology to a friend or family member or spread the word on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We want to share these ideas with as many people as possible, and growing our audience will ensure that episodes keep coming. It also helps if you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and comment on and rate the show. And of course, if you want to hear a particular guest or an episode on your favorite topic, or you just have questions or thoughts about past episodes, get in touch. You can do that on our social media pages or through email addresses on our website. And finally, if you like big biology, then why not check out another interesting biology podcast, DNA Today. Does genetics fascinate you? Of course it does. You're listening to Big Biology. Discover new advances, DNA, in the world of genetics with DNA Today. This podcast explores genetic technology, home DNA kits, CRISPR, rare diseases, groundbreaking research, and more. For a decade, DNA Today has brought you the voices of genetic pioneers. There are over 175 episodes, so plenty to keep you entertained and updated about genetic news. The show is a fan favorite, winning the People's Choice Best Science and Medicine Podcast Award for the past two years. DNA Today is hosted by a genetics expert, Kira Deneen, who helps you understand genetic complexities. Learn more at dnapodcast.com and subscribe, rate, and review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this one. And now, here's the show. What makes mammals mammals? How long have they been on Earth? Why do they come to be so dominant? And what about insects? Ignore this guy. These questions are the crux of our chat today with Steve Broussat, paleontologist at the University of Edinburgh. And scientific advisor to both the new Jurassic World movie, which drops tomorrow, and the amazing new series Prehistoric Planet, which is out now on Apple TV. If you've not seen Prehistoric Planet yet... But you're a dinosaur fan. Although it pains us to say it. Pause this podcast right now and go watch it. Especially if you like pterosaurs. And if you were as awed as I was in that first dino scene of Jurassic Park where Alan Grant, Sam Nail's character, sees a live Brachiosaurus, you will be blown away by this new show. As well as the end of the show today as we talk with Steve about his role in making Jurassic World Dominion. Including some juicy tidbits. But not spoilers. The main topic of today's show is Steve's new book, The Rise and Reign of Mammals. An absolutely excellent read on the origins and diversification of our cousins in fur. In spite of Steve cutting his teeth on dinosaurs, his recent interests have shifted to the mammalian lineage. He writes in the preface of the book that this term was partly because mammals have received so much less attention than other extinct species, especially the dinosaurs. But also because... As a mammal himself... Steve was genuinely curious about where he came from, in deep evolutionary time, that is. Most of us love T-Rex, Allosaurus, Diplodocus, Triceratops, and the menagerie that Crichton and Spielberg popularized in the first Jurassic Park movies. But many people like Marty, you know, the obnoxious ones in the theater that comment on the accuracy of sci-fi movies, are hung up too on the over-Hollywoodization of species like Velociraptor and Dilophosaurus. Don't forget frustration with representations of the behavior of extinct species, lacking terror Anyone? What Steve especially wants us to appreciate about mammals is the many really weird forms that live together with dinosaurs for millions of years. From extinct species like Repenomamus, who ate dinosaurs, to the enormous Bronotheres, rhino-looking horse relatives, and Glyptodonts, Volkswagen-sized armadillos, to Pachycetus and Phyomacetus, incipient whales with legs, to the unassuming Archaeotherus, a lizard-like synapsid that is probably our most recent common ancestor with dinos. 
Mammals and their close ancestors deserve so much more attention than we, and Hollywood, have given them so far. Today with Steve, we try to rectify this lack of attention. We discuss how mammals took over the planet from dinosaurs about 66 million years ago, after the infamous KT asteroid impact in the Yucatan. We discuss what evolutionary innovations underpin mammalian success. Can you believe it involves ear and jawbones? And we cover what traits now enable the mammals to be the dominant taxon on land. With backbones, that is. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Big Biology today. I'm excited to talk about the new book that you have coming out, The Rise and Reign of the Mammals, as well as the consulting role that you've had in the new Jurassic World movie due out on the, the 10th of June. But let's start with the book, Um, 10 chapters that cover everything from early mammalian evolution to extreme mammals, including we extreme humans. Um, There's no way we're going to get to everything in that book in the the hour that we have. So we're going to hit a few key ideas and some of our favorite parts. But first, we'll start slow and obvious. What makes a mammal a mammal? What traits differentiate it from other vertebrates? How many mammals are there on Earth today? And what do we need to know to have a, a meaningful conversation about mammals? So first of all, thanks for inviting me to do this. I know we've been trying to sync up for a while, so I'm, I'm really happy. Uh, and I love doing podcasts. I especially love doing a podcast where I can actually really talk science, really talk biology, and of course, promote the new book. So, you know, and yes, we have the hour. We'll cover a lot. It's going to be fun. But uh, the things we don't cover, you know, you'll just have to buy the book, of course, <laughs> to, to get to those. So I was basically trained as a, a dinosaur paleontologist. That's how I started my career. I wrote a book about dinosaurs a few years ago called The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. And as I've evolved, let's say, as a scientist, you know, I studied all these points of dinosaur history, how dinosaurs originated, how they became dominant, how they got big, how they evolved feathers and wings and became birds, how they went extinct. As I've kind of gone through that uh, progression of studying dinosaurs, I've, I think naturally just become interested in what happened after the dinosaurs. You know, that asteroid came down from outer space one day, six mile wide asteroid, billion nuclear bombs worth of energy just released on impact. The world would never be the same. And it was out of the ashes of that that mammals took over from the dinosaurs. So my research has been tending a lot more towards mammals, particularly those first mammals that weathered that catastrophic apocalyptic mass extinction and then set the stage for us. But mammal history goes way back. And I think we often have this concept that, you know, there are these neat, tidy eras of geological time. You know, you have the age of amphibians, the age of dinosaurs, then the age of mammals. And that's kind of true, you know, in the same way we can divide human history into rough intervals. But it's not true that mammals came after the dinosaurs, you know, that, that, that the dinosaurs thrived and then the dinosaurs died and then mammals evolved and took their place. Mammals and dinosaurs actually go back to the same time. They have the same origin story. They go back to the Triassic period. This was about 225, 230 million years ago. And they go back to the supercontinent of Pangaea. This was the time when all of the world's land was gathered together, stretched from North Pole to South Pole. Very different world from today. And you had all these new types of plants and animals that were originating and evolving and interacting on Pangaea after a really big mass extinction. This extinction at the end of the Permian period, about 250 million years ago, Huge volcanoes erupted, led to runaway global warming, 
the closest life has ever come to completely dying out. Up to 95% of species died in this extinction. And from the few survivors, you had this abundant opportunity. The world was open, you know, and dinosaurs and mammals and crocodiles and turtles and pterosaurs, you know, pterodactyls, all these groups started to evolve in the aftermath as the world was healing. But of course they went their different ways and dinosaurs were destined for greatness, for grandeur, for uh, evolving into the biggest things that had ever lived at that point in time. Mammals were relegated to the shadows and mammals stayed small, but they were really good at staying small. And as they were evolving in this dinosaur dominated world, these first mammals were developing all of these features that make mammals mammals, the things that set us apart from reptiles and birds and dinosaurs, the things that we have as humans still. And I'm talking about hair. I'm talking about feeding our babies milk. I'm talking about the very complex teeth we have. You look in the mouth of a T-Rex, all the teeth look the same. They're all steak knives. We have incisors for nipping. We have canines for slicing. We have premolars and molars for crushing. And those teeth are so sophisticated, so specialized, they fit together so precisely. Just, you know, punch your jaw. It sounds great, but I kind of wish I had steak knives. I mean, I, I would almost trade that all for a mouthful of steak knives. <laughs> that would be good, unless you're eating cabbages or something. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and actually, it's one of the things, our teeth, they, they are, you know, because we have so many different types of teeth, our mouth is like a Swiss army knife. We can eat lots of different things. That's one of the mammal superpowers. But because our teeth have to fit together so precisely, you know, when you lock your jaw, you know, uh, the top ones have to come in contact with the bottom ones. There's all these peaks and valleys on the molars. Because of that, we can only have, you know, a set of baby teeth that's there for a little bit of time. Then we get a set of adult teeth. Those teeth can't really change. So that's one of the handicaps of being a mammal. But it's all part of having very highly specialized teeth that allow us to eat lots of different foods. And of course, mammals have big brains. Mammals have really keen senses of smell and of hearing, particularly. And mammals are warm-blooded. We grow fast and so on. And so all of these trademarks of mammals were developing as these first mammals were living alongside dinosaurs. I want, to, I want to stick on this point of, of just, you know, this long period of overlap between dinosaurs and mammals. And tell us about mammal diversity during that time. So were most or all of the major mammal groups that we see today, were they present, you know, back in the Cretaceous, for example? There was about 150 million years, give or take, that mammals and dinosaurs coexisted, that they lived side by side. And in some ways, they were kind of like ships passing in the night. You know, the dinosaurs were generally much bigger. The mammals were much smaller. The mammals were, many of them seemed to have been nocturnal. That was probably a survival mechanism in a world where you had airplane-sized dinosaurs stomping around during the day. Uh, but they, they were coexisting. They were sharing the same world, dividing up resources. And all of these mammals, for the 150 million years or so, they, they were all small. You never got a mammal during that time that was bigger than a badger. And they were archaic mammals. They were not the kind of mammals we're used to. You know, they weren't horses and whales and bats and monkeys and those kind of things. They were ancient groups that have mostly gone extinct, things that we only know from, know from fossils. But the more fossils we find, and especially the fossils that have been found over the last 20 years in China, in northeastern China, in a place called Liaoning, these fossils, you had entire ecosystems that were buried by volcanoes, almost Pompeii style. So you got exquisite preservation of even the tiniest little animals. So 
these mammals are preserved. You can see their fur. You can see all their bones. What we see from these mammals and other mammal fossils around the world that are emerging as more and more paleontologists are going out to look, what we see is that although for these 150 million years, mammals were living underfoot of dinosaurs, never bigger than a badger. They were diverse and they were diversifying and they were constantly adapting to their world. There were mammals that were fast runners. There were mammals that were scurriers. There were mammals that were climbers. There were mammals that could swim. There were mammals that had wings of skin that they glided on. So they were the kings and queens of the underworld at that time. It's just that they weren't big. They were filling these small niches. And so, you know, the dinosaurs were keeping mammals small. But conversely, the mammals were keeping dinosaurs big. You never saw a T-Rex the size of a mouse, a Triceratops the size of a rat. <laughs> that would make for very different movies, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would not be the same Jurassic World if it's a, a little... I mean, it would be terrifying to have a, a little T-Rex mouse kind of scurrying around nipping at your feet. <laughs> Several hundred of those, yeah. That's <laughs> so it sounds like you're saying that, you know, yes, most of the diversity was there. And then if we sort of look forward in time. So what, what are the major groups of mammals that are left over? over and what are the ones that have disappeared that were formerly diverse? There is a, a verdant family tree of, of mammals over time and a lot of these early groups they thrived in their time and place but they've gone extinct and during the time of dinosaurs there were groups like docodonts and multi-tuberculates mammals that most people have never heard of because they went extinct but they were very diverse in their time. The multi-tuberculates are a great example of that. They originated in the Jurassic period, the same time the giant long-necked dinosaurs were proliferating. But these multi-tuberculates, they of course stayed in the shadows, but they diversified in their own way over time. And they really started to hit their stride in the Cretaceous period, the time after the Jurassic, because this is the time that a new type of organism appeared on the scene. Something radically new and different evolved and started to spread around the world. And it wasn't a type of animal, it was a type of plant. It was flowering plants. You know, the plants were so from. I'm looking out my window, there's these plants you see them and you see flowers and you see fruits on them. A brontosaurus would have never seen a flower, would have never eaten a fruit. You know, the first flowering plants, at least that we find as fossils, are from the Cretaceous, and then they started to diversify then. And as they diversified, you know, this was a new food source for animals to take advantage of, especially smaller animals like mammals. And co-evolving with those plants were lots of new types of insects, the pollinators of those flowers. So you had this revolution, it's called the Cretaceous Terrestrial Revolution. And so ecosystems dramatically changed. You had this, these new food sources at the base of these ecosystems on land. And so dinosaurs took advantage, of course, and they evolved in new ways, and mammals did. And these multi-tuberculates, they really prospered. There were countless species of these things living in the Cretaceous. They were living all over the place. Uh, they and their relatives really were living all over the world. And uh, they, they would have looked a bit like rodents. They were not rodents. They were a more ancient archaic group, but they would have had bucktooth incisors. They would have gnawed on things. They would have had big cheek teeth on the side of their mouth. They would have used to chew through lots of plants. And they really were the preeminent animals in the understory, in the growth, on the forest floor, in the burrows. And where we see rats and mice and these kind of things today, that's where we would have seen multi-tuberculates back then. And maybe we wouldn't have seen them if we were transported to that world. It's not like we would see these things, just like we don't see rats running around everywhere, but we know they're there. So that's such an intriguing group. I mean, for, for many, many reasons, but two conspicuous things come out that Art and I talked a little bit about these offline. How does something that's so unbelievably diverse and presumably numerous too, given their lifestyles, how does something like that go extinct? And what does it mean 
that now we have rodents that share similar morphology, probably behavior. If those are so successful now, and the rodents are the most diverse taxa uh, among mammals, I mean, how, how do you put all of this together? It doesn't really seem to make sense. That should seem to be the last group to go extinct, and yet they're replaced by something else that has become super dominant. One thing we have to um, consider <laughs> is that this little inconvenient thing that happened 66 million years ago at the end of the Cretaceous, <laughs> the, 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 the multi-tuberculates of that time, the dinosaurs of that time, T-Rex was there at that time, they would have woken up on that morning and it would have been the same as it had always been. But at some point in that day, this six-mile-wide asteroid fell out of the sky, and it was traveling faster than a speeding bullet. It literally was traveling faster than a speeding bullet. And it, it could have gone anywhere. I mean, this was just a speck of, of dust in the cosmos, you know, on the grand scale of things. But it happened to make a beeline for the Earth, and it smashed into what's now the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. You can see some of the crater there. This crater is over 100 miles wide. It's like 20 miles deep. This thing impacted with the force of a billion nuclear bombs put together. And that had global consequence. I mean, this was no normal day. This was probably the single worst day in the history of life on Earth. Because that's not a normal thing. That was the biggest asteroid that's hit the Earth, <laughs> at least in the last half a billion years. Talk about a bad day. Yeah, we that won't is talk a that one. bad day. We've all had bad days. We have yet any of us to experience an asteroid like that. It's catastrophic, and it was. And instantaneously, it led to tsunamis and wildfires and earthquakes and hurricane-force winds and all that molten stuff from the impact went into the atmosphere. It warmed the atmosphere. Forests spontaneously combusted. Rain of hot glass. You know, imagine like a hailstorm, but of hot glass, you know, rain down on these animals. It would have killed a lot of things in, in, in those moments. And then all the dust and grime from the collision all the soot from the forest fires went up into the atmosphere, spread around the world, blocked out the sun, global nuclear winter, worldwide dark for several years. And plants could not photosynthesize. They didn't have sunlight to photosynthesize. The only way most plants survived was because they had seeds that could just persist in the soil for a while. You know, the individual plants, they died. Forests collapsed. Plant eaters didn't have food to eat. Meat eaters didn't have food to eat. It all cascaded through the food web and these ecosystems collapsed like houses of cards. And dinosaurs could not cope with that. Other than birds, you know, a few birds made it through these very peculiar dinosaurs with feathers and wings and beaks that could eat seeds and grow really fast and fly away from the danger. But all the other dinosaurs couldn't make it through. Now, mammals did make it through. Obviously, we would not be here if, if they didn't. You know, we had an ancestor that stared down that asteroid. But what people don't often realize is how close mammals came to going the way of the dinosaurs. And the fossil record tells us that it's, it seems like more than 90% of mammals died. So in the book, in, in The Rise and Reign of the Mammals, I, I make this analogy. I you know, you're playing a game of asteroid roulette. You got, a, you got a gun, you got 10 chambers, nine of them hold a bullet. That's what the mammals were up against when the asteroid hit. And some managed to make it through. But so many mammals, the ones that were prospering underfoot of the dinosaurs, they died as well. And it just so happened, it seems like the mammals that were smaller, so they could hide easier, they could move around easier, probably grow faster, and the ones that had more omnivorous diets that could eat a wide range of foods, those seem to be the best, you know, hand of cards to have when that asteroid hit. Yeah, let's, let's 
sort of walk down this path of imagining mammals having gone extinct. So who would have been ecologically dominant in the last 65 million years if that had happened? Would it be, would it be insect world and, you know, insects are making the podcasts and watching movies about <laughs> extinct mammals. I mean, probably really highly intelligent, uh, you know, octopuses <laughs> and squids and stuff, you know, they, their tentacles would have turned into arms and legs. I don't know, you know, but seriously, I mean, if the mammals went the way of the dinosaurs, you know, some crocodiles, a lot of, actually a lot of crocodiles and turtles survived because, a lot of them were in ecosystems that did not have plants at the base of their food web. They were in these more lacustrine and uh, pond ecosystems that were detritus based. If you were in those ecosystems, the end of the Cretaceous was a great time to be alive because all kinds of stuff was dying and going into the water. So, you know, they made it through. And of course, you know, a lot of insects did and, and, and a lot of invertebrates and so on. But, but about 75% of all species, it seems, died out when the asteroid hit. So, you know... The, the odds were, were were slim. They were really slim. And you can imagine so many alternative histories. You know, what if the asteroid never hit at all? What if it just rustled the upper layers of the atmosphere and sailed right up by? Well, dinosaurs had been around for well over 150 million years. They had weathered everything. Heat spikes, falls in temperature, rising and falling sea levels, volcanoes, all kinds. I mean, surely dinosaurs would have continued. And they probably would have continued to today in, in the large-bodied roles in ecosystems. Yeah. And then you can play the what if game, of course, that if what if no mammals made it through? What if, you know, our particular ancestor, the things that would later give rise to primates, you know, basically the first placental mammals, those mammals made it through the extinction. And placentals are the ones like us that give live birth to well-developed young. And that's the vast majority of mammals today. So you did ask me earlier, and I didn't answer it, by the way, you know, mammals in today's world, about 6,000 species. And the vast majority of those, about 95% are placental mammals like us. You know, they give live birth to well-developed young. They invest a lot prenatally. And it, basically, the, the, the babies have a head start in life. Not in every placental. There are some placentals, of course, like, you know, mice and rats that do give birth to smaller offspring. But by and large, a lot of placentals, they can give birth to these larger babies that have already developed quite a bit in the womb. They're just more ready to go in the world. That was probably something that helped them survive the asteroid, or if not survive the asteroid, then take advantage after. And I'm sure we'll get to this in a second, what happened after the asteroid hit to those survivors. But it's just worth mentioning, of course, now that, you know, that's about, about 95% of modern mammals are placentals. But you also have marsupials, these are things like koalas and kangaroos. They're very unusual for, for people that live in Europe or North America. There's none of them in Europe anymore. In North America, there's only one species. That's the possum. That's something that's a recent immigrant. Uh, but, it, you know, Australia, South America, there's a there are a lot of marsupials there. They basically were sequestered down there. There were ancestors that migrated down there. They evolved in isolation. That was their refuge in the southern continents. And they give birth live birth, but to feeble little babies, these tiny pipsqueak little things that are so underdeveloped, so premature, they have to develop further in a pouch. And then there's one other type of living mammal, and these are the weirdest ones of all, these are the monotremes. There's only a handful of species, the platypus and some different species of echidna. They only live in Australia and around Australia. These mammals still lay eggs. And they are a very ancient, very archaic group of mammals from way down on the family tree that managed to somehow hold on through everything that Earth history and asteroids and extinctions have thrown at mammals. They managed to hold on. Things like multi-tuberculus that we talked about that were so common in the Cretaceous that went extinct, they were more advanced than the monotremes. They were more closely related to us. 
one of these Cretaceous multituberculates was a closer relative to us than either was to a modern-day platypus. But these are just weird mammals that have somehow managed to hold on. And they give a glimpse of what primitive mammals would have looked like. They laid eggs, they fed their babies milk, but basically they don't have the same mammary glands that most mammals today do. That They would have leaked milk out of their abdomens, the mothers. That's what the monotremes do. Uh, and there's lots of other peculiar features of monotremes. But we're very lucky that they've persisted. They give us this little glimpse at the distant history of mammals. Yeah. You know, there's one part in your book, Steve, that really got me excited because I, I always worry there was a little bit of time in my life where I wanted to be a paleontologist. So you talk about how you know from fossils whether something is an egg layer or placental. Because, you know, to look at the to look at the fossil, how in the world could you possibly know that? There's a magic trick, right? There's some special trait that the marsupials and the monotremes, or for sure the marsupials, I'm not sure about the others, but that they have, what is that? How, how did you, that, that's just a neat trick, convenient. With a fossil, if we find a fossil mammal, it can be very hard to tell how they reproduce. You know, did they lay eggs or not? Sometimes you do find fossil eggs and, and you know, that's very rare though. So a lot of times we have to infer this based on other features of the anatomy. And there's really two ways we can infer something was a placental mammal that gave live birth to well-developed young. One thing is you can cut the bones open. You know, there's there's records of growth in the bones and in the teeth. You can make these thinner than salami slices, put them under the microscope. And there's indicators, both textural indicators and also there's chemical indicators that can tell you some things about how long these animals developed. I mean, you know, when teeth develop, they leave daily lines of growth and you can count these things and you can uh, make a few calculations and see, you know, was this baby in the womb for, you know, a few weeks or many months, that kind of thing. So if, if you have good fossils that preserve those pristine records of growth in the teeth and bones for millions and millions of years, you can do it that way. But that can be very tricky. You have to cut up the fossils, you have to destroy the fossils. Like we don't like yeah. to do that. So the uh, one other way is that um, early mammals, you know, the mammals that lived with the dinosaurs, the first mammals, and then also modern day monotremes that lay eggs and marsupials that give birth to tiny little babies. Uh, they have extra bones at the front of their pelvis. They're called epipubis bones. They used to be called marsupial bones. There used to be this idea that they support the pouch. That's not true as it turns out, but they, they, they do many things. They anchor certain you know muscles and so on. And, and they do seem to provide support for marsupials that are nursing lots of little babies. But the point is that we don't have those as placentals. Why don't we have those? Well, there's no room in the abdomen to develop a big baby and have a big placenta if those bones are there. So the loss of those bones is really suggestive. If you, if you see a fossil without those bones, it's really suggestive that it was gestating large babies for long periods of time with a really big placenta. Is it definitive, unequivocal? No, you know, maybe there might be some case out there, but by and large, it's a nifty trick. And it seems to be when we look at the records of growth in the bones and teeth, and we kind of match that up, that based on what we know, it seems to work. So we want to, I want to roll the clock way back for a bit. And then I think we're going to jump forward and talk about modern species. When do species stop being non-mammals and start being mammals? Is there some place that you can look in time or some trait you can point to and say, okay, now that's a mammal and no longer an ancestor of a mammal? 
classification is a human thing. We do it. We like putting things into boxes, putting things into categories. You know, nature doesn't really classify. Natural selection doesn't always draw clean lines between things. <laughs> oh, we've got to get natural selection to cooperate. I wish, right? But, uh, you know, it's up to us to classify things. And some of our classification schemes are historical. They just developed over the last several hundred years. Other classification schemes are newer. And of course, people debate about classification and, and terminology. And it's something I don't like to get bogged down in because it's not really science. It's how we label things. But over the last few decades, there's been a move to define mammals using what's called a crown group definition. This is just taking all of the modern day mammal species, seeing where they're at the family tree, tracing down to their most recent common ancestor and saying that anything that evolved from that ancestor, whether living or extinct, is a mammal. The same thing with other groups. You know, there's a crown group definition for birds and for um, amphibians and so on. That doesn't really jibe with the historical definition. Historically, the definition of a mammal, and this is a definition that I use in the book, it's a definition that makes the most sense to me. It's something that, you know, if I was doing scholarly writing, if I was writing a scientific paper, I would treat it a little bit differently. But in the book, to be very clear, I use the historical definition, and that is the ancestors of mammals dramatically changed their teeth and their jaws and their ears. This was a big part of becoming a mammal. You know, developing these very specialized teeth and sizers like canines and premolars and molars and having one set of adult teeth, one set of baby teeth, very precise chewing, very strong jaw muscles, all of that. There was those changes going on. Meanwhile, the brain's getting bigger. That's also making the architecture of the skull change. Some of the little bones that used to be in the jaws of the ancestors of mammals, things like reptiles, dinosaurs, they have lots of bones in their lower jaw. Those bones were becoming smaller and smaller in these mammal ancestors because the bite forces were getting so strong that the muscles were being concentrated near the teeth itself. So all these little bones of the jaw behind the teeth were getting smaller and smaller. They were basically wasting away atrophy over evolutionary time. And at some point, you get a new type of jaw joint where those little bones have either disappeared or they've gone on to do other things, including going into the ear. These little bones in our ear are remnants of these ancient jaw bones. But because those bones got so small, we only have a single lower jaw bone. All of our teeth are in that bone. All the muscles attached to that bone. That's called the dentary bone. And now that bone, because it stands alone, it has to connect to the upper skull in a different way. And it connects to what's called the squamosal bone in the upper skull. It seems kind of trivial. It's like some changes in the jaw joints. But that traditionally is the dividing line between mammal and non-mammal for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's easy to recognize in fossils. You know, we can see, are there many jaw joints or many lower jaw bones, sorry, or is there just one lower jaw bone? So it's a nice, clear, practical thing. Secondly, this was an important thing. It might seem like some anatomical minutiae, who cares, the jaws, but no. Changing the jaw from a jaw that had like 10 different bones in, in each jaw, you know, that's a loose jaw. There's lots of motion. You know, there's lots of things that can articulate and disarticulate and move around relative to each other and dislocate. That's not a way to be a great, strong biter. Some dinosaurs figured out, you know, T-Rex, for instance, had other ways to do it. But as mammals were getting smaller and smaller, the ancestors of mammals, that jaw configuration with lots of bones just wasn't working. And so by anchoring everything on a single bone, that allowed these mammals to bite a lot harder 
it allowed them to very carefully orchestrate their jaw motions. We can chew. And you can see I, I have a cough drop in my mouth to make sure my voice holds up, you know, and I'm moving around, right? We all do this. We chew, you know, we can move our jaw up and down. We can move our jaw side to side. We can wiggle our jaw. That's actually really unusual. A dinosaur couldn't do that. A dinosaur was just chomp. So there's a lot going on with the jaws of mammals. And that changed to a, the key point here in all this discussion of anatomy is that changing, simplifying your jaw, so that there's only a single bone hosting all the teeth, all the muscles that allowed mammals to be much stronger biters and to chew their food. And that was integral in their early success. So, so you, you, you sort of casted this as like, well, maybe it sounds like Medushi, you know, just moving around a few bones. I mean, to me, it actually sounds like a really major operation, sort of evolutionary change. And we're defining sort of pre-mammal and, and actual mammal based on this change. But over how many millions of years did that change appear? Was it like a super rapid several million year sort of thing? Or was it like a tens of millions of year process to, to get from one to the other? It took a long time. It wasn't like one chance mutation one day that, you know, turned a, yeah, sure. a reptile jaw into a mammal jaw. Yeah, it's got to be a lot of coordinated changes in many, you know, muscle and bone structures altogether, right? Exactly. Because you have teeth, you have muscles, you have different bones, you have the joint between the lower jaw and the upper jaw. You also have the brain. Right. The behaviors that go with it. You have the, the behaviors. You have the ear as well, because some of these little jaw bones in the ancestors of mammals that would have been in the lower jaw behind the teeth just kind of hanging out, kind of taking part in the jaw, but not doing too much. As those bones got smaller and smaller and the major bone took over in mammals, those bones were liberated. They could either disappear, and some of them did, or they could go on to do other things. And some of them did move into the ear. They got tiny and they moved into the ear and they joined up with a bone that was already there called the stapes bone that reptiles have and birds have and so on. But by, by adding a few of these former jaw bones, giving them a new function, they were repurposed into these bones in the ear that could amplify sound. And so that's one reason that mammals are really good at hearing. So sort of hearing superpowers come from this. Absolutely. And so mammals are great at hearing. Mammals are not very good at seeing. Mammal eyesight is pretty bad. Just think about it. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm gesturing with my glasses at the screen. Glasses, I got contacts and, you know, we are bad. And and it's not just humans you know, getting older and then your eyes starting to, to, to not work anymore. It's as a whole, as, as an entire group, we're pretty bad. And just think about mammals. I mean, think about the mammals that are out there. I mean, most mammals are drab colored. They're brown, they're black, you know, maybe they're they're white, you know, depending on the environment. But you don't see flamboyant colors, greens and blues and purples and pinks and stuff like you see in birds. That's because most mammals can't see those colors. We are one of the few mammals, and I mean really few. We're talking about a handful. You can count on one or two hands all of the modern day mammals that can even see color. We are one of them. Uh, so mammals really early on kind of traded eyesight for, for hearing, and it was those little bones that used to be in the jaw that moved into the ear that really helped mammals hear better. But now to circle back to the, to the actual question, this process took millions of years. It was a long-term progression, really, as mammals were, were getting small, their bodies were getting smaller and smaller, their brains were getting bigger, the muscles on the face, in some cases, were getting bigger and moving around, the teeth were becoming more complex. All of this stuff was happening, and the jaw bones were part of, of these changes. It's hard to say what was driving what. 
You know, there's lots of ideas. Oh, it was mammals were making these changes so they could bite harder, so they could chew better. Oh, they were making these changes because the brain was getting bigger and kind of putting pressure on the rest of the skull. We don't really know. We don't really know that. But we do know that these things were all changing together. So this really was revolutionary. I mean, mammals are so dramatically different than other animals in terms of our heads and our jaws and our ears. And these are special things. And all of these changes, again, they seem like nuances. They might seem like just something that, you know, oh, maybe doctors learn this stuff in medical school. Who cares? It's just little things about bones. But this is total reconfiguration of our jaw and our teeth and our ears. And so many of the things we are good at chewing and having strong bites and hearing really well is because of these changes. So Steve, one of my favorite aspects of your book was that, you know, often you would start chapters based on a person, some historical figure in paleontology. So I wanted to sort of talk about a couple of them. There's far too many to, to hit everybody. And it feels like we should start with Richard Owen, since, you know, he was the guy, he was a guy that came up with the, the word dinosaur, but he was really important to mammalian paleontology. And I'm going to be honest, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about it is uh, he had quite the personality. <laughs> so, so what was his contribution to what we know about mammals today? Well, I'm, I'm glad he's not here in this podcast chat because he would not <laughs> be a very pleasant character from everything we know. Um, Owen was a Victorian era figure in England, and he was an anatomist. He was an expert on anatomy. He did a lot of things in his career. He, he basically founded the Natural History Museum in London, which is now one of the world's great institutions. He was a tutor to Victoria and Albert's children. Uh, and he described legions of fossils, including mammals and dinosaurs. And as you say, he coined the word dinosaur. So he was studying the very first dinosaurs that were turning up in the English countryside in the early to mid 1800s. And he was part of this first generation of professional scientists that were studying these things, describing these things using modern research techniques and comparing them with other bones and trying to identify them and figure out when they lived. Now, Owen uh, was, he, he was not a very nice character from all accounts. There are some stories in the book I tell about him. He was the biggest rival to Charles Darwin. They started out as friends and they became great rivals. So Owen, Owen was a, a, a really fiery social conservative. And I'm not even talking about politically, I'm talking about just socially. He was very much part of this upper gentry educated class during a time. This is, you know, this is the time of Dickens and everything, you know, this was a time. And so Owen was a big guy in, you know, social order. And, um, you know, we, we, uh, we're getting on a tangent there, but this is what he was. He was very much an establishment figure. And people like Darwin who were having new ideas, especially ideas about species changing and all this, and this was a real threat to him. However, he did study a lot of these important early fossil mammals, and he got a lot of fossils from South Africa, and these were fossils from earlier, before there were mammals. This is from the Permian and early Triassic, but they were the, the predecessors of mammals. So he was one of the first people that really realized that there were these reptilian animals that gave rise to mammals. They were not reptiles. <laughs> we often mistake mammals evolved from reptiles. No, reptiles are a separate group. But these mammal ancestors, they were reptilian in their being. They looked like reptiles. Their arms and legs splayed off to the sides. They had scales on their bodies. They had small brains. They were cold-blooded. So Owen, he studied uh, a lot of these animals, and he even got Victoria and Albert's children the princes of England and Wales and so on to go and collect 
fossils for him. <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> put, put down your sherry and start digging. Um, let's talk just sort of very briefly about one other person, and then we want to move on and talk about your roles in the Jurassic World series. Um, so Zofia Kailan-Javoraska, and maybe I butchered the pronunciation there, but um, you have this just sort of great set of anecdotes in the book about her and her contributions to mammal paleontology. So tell, tell us about her and what she did. Sophia is one of my all-time heroes, and I really feel privileged that, that I was able to meet her just a little over a decade ago, and, and not too long before she passed away. And uh, it, it was amazing. I tell the story in the book about visiting her in her house outside of Warsaw. So I did a lot of work in Poland when I was a student, mostly looking for dinosaurs and trying to study, you know, reptiles. We were trying to find those fossils. This was really before I was too interested in mammals. But I knew Zofia. She was a legend because she led the first female-led paleontological expeditions. And this was in the 60s and 70s. And it wasn't just her. It was an entire group of incredible young female scientists from Poland who worked in Mongolia with their Mongolian colleagues, including several young Mongolians that would become eminent paleontologists in their own right. Poland was very different. This was behind the Iron Curtain, of course. One of the things about that culture at that time compared to, say, American culture or British culture is that there were women like Sophia that were put in leadership positions and given authority and given resources, and she ran with it. And she organized these expeditions to the Gobi Desert for nearly 10 years, and they went back essentially every year. And this was incredible because Sophia was there during the Warsaw Uprising in World War II. She was a student. And then the city collapsed, of course, and she put her studies on hold. Everything went to chaos. She was a medic tending to the wounded during the Warsaw Uprising, and she was clandestinely attending university classes during this time. The university was destroyed, so these classes were being held in undisclosed locations around the city. And she came out of this enthralled with paleontology. But what she started to study were tiny little invertebrate fossils, little bugs, basically, that lived much longer you know, ago before mammals and dinosaurs. And she became one of the world experts on these. And for over a decade, she specialized in these things. But she had this romantic view, vision of the Gobi Desert. She read some, of, some books about fossil hunters that had gone there decades before the walls went up. And she dreamed of going there. And she finally was given the resources and the opportunity to do it. She built these incredible teams. They collected a lot of dinosaurs. A lot of the most famous dinosaurs Zofia collected. But what she really was interested in was mammals. And so she perfected these techniques of literally eyes to the rock, you know, down on your knees, eyes to the rocks, magnifying glasses, magnifying lenses to see the tiny teeth and jaws of these mammals. Because this is Cretaceous Age rock they were looking at. This was the time of giant dinosaurs. But she wanted to know what was living underneath those dinosaurs. And they collected the most astounding record. You know, up until the time Zofia collected these mammals in the Gobi in the 60s and 70s, mammals that lived with dinosaurs, all, all that was really known were some jaws, some teeth from random parts of the world. She collected dozens and dozens and dozens of complete skulls. And she still had a lot of these in her house when, when I visited her in, in the, the early 2010s. And so I read her books when I was a, a student, when, you know, I, when I was in high school, when I was becoming enthralled with fossils, I read her books. She did write books about, about her adventures there. And so being able to meet her was uh, an amazing thing. And she, scientifically, I mean, there was, there was nobody like her. So, um, in the past, you mentioned it just a few minutes ago that 
this is not the only rise uh, and fall book that you've written. I guess not fall so much for, for the new one, but you wrote a book in the past called Rise and Fall of Dinos, Dinosaurs. Probably has something to do with your role in this Jurassic World movie. Um, Jurassic World Dominion, I guess it comes out in early June. How did you get involved in that? What was your favorite part of that process? It's, it's, it's really funny. And it's actually, I got involved because of the book. So in 2018, I, you know, wrote the rise and fall of the dinosaurs, a pop science book, just like the new, you know, rise and reign of the mammals. And as you can tell from the titles, you know, the mammal book, it's, it's not really a sequel necessarily. It's just kind of another book in the series. And of course, we don't only talk about what happened after the dinosaurs in the mammal book. We, we go back in time and talk about history, but by and large, you know, the, the new book is of a similar style to what I did for the dinosaur book. And so in 2018, uh, the last Jurassic World film came came out right around the time the book came out, which of course was no coincidence because if you're going to release a dinosaur book, <laughs> you're going to release it around the time there's a new Jurassic film. So uh, so we kind of rode that wave. And, and a few months later, I got uh, an email from an account that said Colin Trevorrow, that was the name. And I said, oh, this must be a joke. You know, of course I knew Colin. He's the director of the Jurassic World series. I thought this must be a joke. And, you know, I read the email, opened it up and it said, he said something like, hi, I'm Colin. I make scientifically inaccurate dinosaur films. I read your book. I'd love to chat. That's, that's refreshing honesty. Yeah, well, he's a funny guy. He's very, very self-aware. He knows what his franchise is. But anyway, so I, you know, I read that and I thought, oh, this is, this is some BS here. One of my students or one of my colleagues is just playing a joke on me, you know, you know, saying, oh, Steve's got his book out. His ego's getting too big. Let's play a joke with him, you know, <laughs> Jurassic World, make him. And so anyway, so, so I had my uh, publisher and literary agent stuff, you know, people behind the book, all the great people that really make a book a success. The author's only a small part of it. But I, I, I told them, about it. And I said, can we look into this? Can you just ask some people? And they came back a little bit later and said, yeah, that's him. You know, that's his email. I said, no way. So, you know, I replied and, and he got back in touch, said, let's set up a phone call. We set up a phone call and he said, I'm going to be coming to Edinburgh. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm American. I grew up around Chicago, but I've been for about the past decade here at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, where I'm a professor and I teach here. So Colin, uh, who's also American, also living in the UK, he said, I'm, I'm coming with my family to the festival, to the big arts festival in August. He said, you know, let's meet up. Let's talk dinosaurs. I said, yeah, absolutely. So I asked him, I said, do you, do you like whiskey? <laughs> and he said, of course. And I said, well, I'll take you to the Whiskey Society, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, which is like, it's a club, but anybody can join. Uh, you just got to pay the money. But they, they get different casks of whiskey from different distilleries and bottle them themselves. And so we went there, but it was around lunchtime. And it's the only time I've ever been there that didn't have whiskey. <laughs> we had coffee. <laughs> it was fine. He said, he said, you know, my wife and kids are at a show. We're going to go to another show in a couple of hours. I said, that's fine. I said, my wife's at home. You know, this is a work day. This would be kind of weird anyway. So we had a very nice cup of very posh coffee that lasted, you know, several hours. We, we ended up talking for many hours and the conversation just just flowed and flowed. And he said right right away to me that uh, I'm starting to, to work on the next film. We're going to have one more in the trilogy. And I want there to be a lot of new dinosaurs. And I want there to be feathers on some of the dinosaurs. And this was the big thing. I mean, we've known for a while that a lot of dinosaurs had feathers, even wings, and that hadn't made it into Jurassic Park. And it's a never ending source of frustration for paleontologists because the image that people get from Jurassic Park is of these scaly reptilian monster dinosaurs. In reality, we know a lot of them are covered in feathers. The problem is that those first feathered dinosaurs were discovered in 1996, the first actual fossils of dinosaurs with feathers. Jurassic Park came out in 93. 
So, you know, Steven Spielberg, if he tried to put feathers on the dinosaurs, people would have laughed at him. So just horrible timing. But, but, but anyway, because the film kind of, those dinosaurs became so iconic, they became worldwide movie character celebrity. I mean, you're not going to change those things. So it's been frustrating. But Colin said, I want to put feathers on some of the dinosaurs. And I said, all right. I said, I love the series. And it is a very important series. I mean, nothing has done more for paleontology over the last several decades than Jurassic Park. It's just led to uh, so much more public knowledge and interest in dinosaurs. It's led museums to put on more exhibits and universities put on more courses and it's led to more funding. It's a great thing, even if the dinosaurs aren't perfect or whatever scientific. It's, it, for the field, it's been tremendous. But the one thing, you know, I always say, I want feathers on the dinosaurs. So when he told me that, I said, I love it. And he said, you want to help out? You want to help me make them realistic and help, you know, make sure that we know the science. And I said, absolutely sign me up. So my job is to basically, you know, it was to be on retainer, (laughs) to be there on call, to answer any questions that Colin, the character designers, incredibly talented team of artists uh, led by Kev Jenkins, uh, David Vickery and others, any questions they had, anything they wanted to know about the real fossils, the real dinosaurs, the science, I was there to answer. So, so, so maybe give us, give us some insight into the you know, actual kinds of conversations you had, like what, what kinds of things did they ask and what advice did you give them? The, uh, they, they range. So there were lots of phone calls, lots of emails. Um, one visit to the set. By that time, that was more of just kind of a courtesy thing to see it. You know, they, they already knew what they were going to do. Most of the time, it, it would be, they would call me up, they'd have questions. They'd say, we're designing this dinosaur. What do you know about this dinosaur? Tell me the vital stats. How big was it? How did it move? Where did it live? What kind of teeth did it have? Other times they would be designing dinosaurs and they would be working on their drafts of these digital designs, really, of of the new characters. And they would send me images as they were designing things. How does this look? Does this look realistic? Is there anything dramatically wrong? Or sometimes very specific questions, you know, would it have held its leg this way? What does teeth have looked like this? Is the color we've given it realistic? Is this soft tissue we put on there? because we very rarely get soft tissues preserved in fossils. Is that something that's within the realm of possibilities or is it totally crazy? So there were lots of discussions like that. You know, so my role was just to have the ear of the directors and the character designers to just be speaking the science to them. And they could do with it what they wanted. You know, this is a blockbuster movie franchise. These dinosaurs are not BBC documentary dinosaurs. These are movie monster dinosaurs. And I realized that. And and Jurassic Park to to paleontology is, you know, kind of like Star Wars to astrophysics. (laughs) So I wanted, I, I just made sure that I was speaking the truth to them, that they knew what we knew as scientists and that they had an open dialogue, anything they wanted to know about the fossils, and then they could do with that as they would. I mean, I didn't help write the script, obviously. Some people think this. Oh, you consult on the movie. Tell me about this scene. Why did you decide to show the dinosaur doing this? I don't know. I didn't write it. Like, you know, I just yeah. gave advice uh, on the real di- dinosaurs. Um, I didn't help in editing. I didn't choose the dinosaur characters. None of that. That's what the professionals, the, the, the incredibly right. brilliant, creative, talented Hollywood people do. I was just there to provide that input. But there, there were some fun moments, too. I did visit the set once and, you know, met some of the actors, and, and that was really fun. And then probably the, the, the funniest moment was I was just working from home one day because this was, you know, all being filmed or mostly being filmed during the pandemic 
and you know, of course, hybrid work and working from home, all this. And I was just up at home, just trying to do something to, to grade something, some student assignment. And I get, you know, my phone buzzes and, you know, and phone buzzes and, oh, Colin Trevor. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll take this call. And Colin is like, Hey, Steve, we're, we're on set. We're filming with, uh, with Chris and, you know, Chris Pratt and Bryce Howard and stuff. And, uh, we need to know how to pronounce the name of this dinosaur. And we don't know, but the way that we have Chris say this in the next scene in two minutes is how we're going to have to say it through the entire film. <laughs> oh, geez. No pressure. <laughs> Better get this right. I said to Colin, I said, well, actually, there's two pronunciations of this oh. dinosaur, and some people call this a that. So there were moments of, of, of levity like that, which were really fun. Ultimately, these were really great people to work with. They are immensely talented. They are great storytellers, screenwriters. They're great at visual effects. They're at the top of their game. Me as a scientist, this is a different world. I found it a great privilege to just be able to meet and work with people who are so good at what they do. And the film is cool. It's a cool film. It's a sci-fi film, you know. So these dinosaurs, there's a lot of new dinosaurs that we haven't seen before. Some really cool ones like the Therizinosaurus. There's feathers on some of the dinosaurs. There's this raptor dinosaur with feathers, with wings called Pyroraptor. This is awesome for me as a scientist to have played a small role in bringing this more realistic, more updated version of dinosaurs to the big screen. And it was all really because of the dinosaur book. So maybe if somebody reads the mammal book, who knows, maybe somebody's going to make a blockbuster monster movie with saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths. And oh, stuff. that's great. So that, of course, uh, we know we know you've got to run, Steve, but that is exactly what we wanted to know from you before you're done. Did you talk with Colin about making Rise of Mammals into a movie? I did. Well, I did tell Colin, I said, if you're ever doing mammal stuff and you actually want to consult and i said i i can help out you know so we'll, we'll see we'll see what the future oh, man. Holds. giant slog giant slog can you imagine i've wanted this movie since i was eight multi-tuberculous everywhere yeah <laughs> well great hey the last question that we want to ask because we know you've got to run we really appreciate your time this has been fantastic we're looking forward to the uh, uh movie and the book is really great we can't recommend it more is there anything else that you wanted to say that we didn't ask you we covered a lot of ground here. And, you know, the, the thing we didn't get into too much because of time is the more modern day mammals. You know, how did bats and whales and elephants and primates and eventually humans come to? This is all after the asteroid. And so to get that story, that's the second half of the book. So, again, there you you'll go. have to read the book. <laughs> you'll learn it all there. Ultimately, I got to market the book. But there's so much more. We, we scratched the surface here. We talked a lot about the early evolution of mammals, the origin of mammals, what makes a mammal a mammal, how mammals survived alongside the dinosaurs, how they endured the asteroid. But there's so much more that came afterwards, including the evolution of us. And just one little thing, you know, we are, this is a really weird time. Only for about the past 40,000 years, maybe even less, has there been a single species of human. All throughout the, the last few million years before, there were multiple species of humans living together. It is now us alone pondering where we came from. That is a new thing. There, there is a rich evolutionary story of ourselves, which I tell at the end of the book. Great. Well, thanks a lot. Best of luck with yeah. the book. Thanks so much, Steve. Really fun. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or just leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. All feedback is good feedback.
Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery and Brad Van Paraden for producing this episode. Thanks also to interns Natasha Damright, Jordan Greer, R.B. Smith, and Kyle Smith for helping produce the episode, and to Keating Shimeri for our awesome cover art. Thanks also to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Baron, Tyrion Costello. 